everything that I have prepared, and you will be thankful to know that I will stop at the appropriate time. Doug says there's a clock up here. I see it. I will pay attention to it. He says that I need to stop at 7.40. In the shadow of the cross, our Savior prayed, I do not pray for these alone, but for those also who will believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The effect of the cross is set forth in Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 13, the apostle wrote, But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been made near by the blood of Christ. Jesus on the cross made possible mankind's reconciliation to God. And wherein mankind is reconciled to God, he is also reconciled to his fellow man. After the cross, after the resurrection, and just before his ascension, Christ commissioned his apostles with a particular message that, he, that they were to proclaim. In Matthew's account of that, he told them that all authority had been given to him in heaven and on earth, and that they were to go and teach all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In Mark's account of that, he told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel, that reconciling gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. In that exciting, thrilling book that we know as the book of Acts, we see what Jesus prayed for, what was effected by the cross, and what Christ commissioned the apostles to do, all coming to fruition. I think the book of Acts is by far the most exhilarating and captivating book in all of the Bible. That doesn't take away a bit from any other book of the Bible, any other book of the New Covenant particularly, but it does show the importance of this book. Acts is the record of the apostles doing what Jesus told them to do. In the first chapter of that book, it is said, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise which he said, you heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And then in the 8th verse he said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the book of Acts is the record of that. 
I want to commend you for studying the book of Acts, for focusing on that book during your summer series. I can remember a time when members of the Church of Christ were accused of studying only the book of Acts. We had uh, focused on the book of Acts to such an extent that it was believed commonly by some people that that was the only book that we ever studied. I can even remember seeing thumb marks at about that place in the New Testament where the book of Acts is located. And the thumb marks there were darker than at any other place in the New Testament. Tragically, I haven't heard many accusations in recent years about members of the Church of Christ studying only the book of Acts. And of course, we should not study only the book of Acts. We need to study all of God's Word. But in the process, we do not need to neglect the exceedingly important thoughts and teaching that is found in this great book. So I commend you for using the book of Acts and the theme of courage for your summer series. The overall theme of your summer series is courage, and the specific theme that I am to address tonight is the courage to unite. And that's why I began with that prayer of our Lord in John chapter 17. Neither for these only do I pray, but for those also who shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that the world may believe that you have sent me. There are three passages that I have been assigned uh, to consider in the study tonight. They are Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, and chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. In the interest of time, I am not going to take the time to read all of those passages. Embedded in those passages are a number of principles that are necessary to Christian unity. And as we proceed with our study, these principles will be brought from the texts. You and I know that the church was established on the first Pentecost after the resurrection of Christ when about 3,000 souls gladly received the word and were baptized. One of the passages that we're to focus on tonight is from the second chapter of Acts, and it's in that great chapter, often referred to as the hub of the Bible, that we have the record of the beginning of the church. Peter and the other apostles preached on that occasion. The people were cut to their heart and asked what to do to be saved. They were instructed what to do, and verse 41 says, Those then who gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Those souls that were saved were added to the church. Verse 47 says, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved or such as were being saved. It's important to note that they were all added to the same church. They were all added to the one church. They were all reconciled to God in the one body of Christ by the cross, as Paul had explained so beautifully, or as Paul later explained so beautifully in that great second chapter of Ephesians. This is how Christian unity was originally established. 
It is said of these first converts that they continued steadfastly. Verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. This is how unity was maintained. And I want to call our attention to the importance of being steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. They gladly received the word. They were baptized. They were saved. They were added to the church. But then they continued steadfastly. And among the things that they continued steadfastly in was the apostles' doctrine. Doctrine is important. We need to keep that in mind. The true doctrine, the doctrine of Christ, cannot be overemphasized. Later, after the church had uh, grown to a sizable number, it is said of them, and the multitude of those who had believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. That's from the fourth chapter, verse 32, another section that we have been asked to deal with in the lesson tonight. So all of these texts speak of the marvelous unity, fellowship, brotherly love, and mutual care that characterized the early church as it is pictured there for us in the wonderful book of Acts. Yet somehow... In the intervening years, much of that oneness, that unity, much of that fellowship, much of that brotherly kindness, much of that love, I am afraid, has been diluted, if not in many places, completely destroyed. Today, the unbelieving world looks at a sadly divided, sectarianized version of Christianity. In New Testament times, people were Christians only. A third section of the book that I have been asked to deal with this evening is from the 11th chapter. In that chapter, at verse 26, there is found the well-known statement, And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. May I observe that if unity is to be had today, we must all return to that simple New Testament principle of being just Christians. Christians only. What are we religiously? We're Christians. What kind of Christians? Not any kind of Christians, just Christians. What church are you a member of? I'm a member of that church of which we read in the book of Acts. The church to which the Lord adds all the saved. When people today are saved in the same way people were saved in the book of Acts, and that's the only way to truly be saved, then they are added to the same church that the people were added to of which we read in the book of Acts. And those people were later called Christians. 
And that's what we are. We're not some kind or type or brand of Christian. We're simply Christians. We who are committed to the restoration of original Christianity must demonstrate great courage if we are to have any kind of impact for unity on the religious world today. We must be courageous, first of all, in speaking the truth that establishes unity. We'll say more about that in just a moment. But we must be courageous in setting forth the truth, the truth of God's Word, because only that can establish unity. And then we must likewise be courageous in modeling unity, that unity for which we plead, because it will do no good to speak of unity, to preach about unity, if we demonstrate division and disharmony. We as God's people must demonstrate to the world what it means to be united, what it means to have fellowship with each other, what it means to have been reconciled to God by the cross, by the blood that was shed on the cross. We must model that in our individual lives, in our interaction with other and with each other and our congregations must demonstrate to the community around about it what it means to practice Christian unity. It is interesting to see the emphasis that God's word places upon uh, this matter of unity. In Psalm 133, verse 1, the psalmist said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. You know, there are some things that are good for us that are not pleasant. And there are other things that are pleasant that are not good for us. But unity is one of those rare entities that is both good and pleasant. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Some of us are old enough to remember those little two-tone blue booklets, tracks, written by Brother A.G. Hobbs that used to be found in the track racks and the foyers of almost any building occupied by members of the church anywhere in the country. I remember those little two-tone blue booklets. And one of Brother Hobbs' tracks was titled Christian Unity, a prayer a plea, and a plan. The prayer, of course, was our Lord's Prayer in John 17, 20, and 21, with which we began our study this, this evening. I do not pray for these alone, but for those also who will believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. The plea was that made by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10 when he said, Now I beseech you, brethren, I plead with you, brethren, through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, 
and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. A plea for unity. And then the plan is set forth in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, where it is said, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The Bible emphasizes unity. Our Lord's prayer for it, Paul's plea for it, and God's plan for it. What is necessary to unity? First of all, we must hear, believe, and obey the gospel and be added to the church just as those people were on the day of Pentecost. Come with me now to that great second chapter of Acts. Come to verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to their heart and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Coming down to verse 41, we read, Those then who gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there was was added to them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayer. When we come to the 11th chapter of Acts, another one of the passages that we are drawing principles from tonight, It is said in the latter part of verse 24, and many people were added to the Lord. Now let it be emphasized that apart from obedience to the gospel and becoming members of the body of Christ, the church, no unity is possible. It is foolish for us to think otherwise. It is foolish for us to think that we can have unity, religious unity, spiritual unity with anyone who has not obeyed the gospel and who has not become a member of the Lord's church. But beyond that, there are some other things that are necessary to unity. We must also continue steadfastly. In verse 42 of that second chapter of Acts, it is said, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. We must continue in the faith. In the 11th chapter, come with me there, if you will, to verse 21, talking about the uh, great results that were being achieved in the city of Antioch. It is said, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. 
The King James Version says, He exhorted them that with purpose of heart they should cleave to the Lord. So after we obey the gospel and are added to the church, we must continue steadfastly. We must cleave to the Lord. We must with purpose of heart, with determination of mind, continue with the Lord. Other ways of stating this principle would be, as John put it in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, to walk in the light. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. A little bit later in his second letter at verse 9, John emphasizes the importance of remaining in the teaching or the doctrine of Christ. He warns whosoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. So we have to continue in the teaching about Jesus Christ, about his deity, his divinity. We have to continue in the doctrine that Jesus authorized, the doctrine that we find set out on the pages of the New Testament. In John chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus said, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. Notice the conditionality of being Christ's disciples. If you continue in my word. Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter 1 verse 23. If indeed you continue grounded and steadfast in the faith and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard and which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. Conditionality again. If you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast. So what do we have to do in order to have unity? First of all, we all have to obey the gospel. We have to obey the gospel as it's set forth in the New Testament. We have to obey the gospel the way people obeyed the gospel in New Testament times and be added to the New Testament church. Then, once we've done that, we must continue steadfastly in the faith. Beyond that, we must be receptive to intensive teaching because we don't know everything when we obey the gospel. We know enough to become a Christian, to be added to the church, but there's more teaching that needs to be done. Look now in chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. Barnabas has come to Antioch. He's been sent there by the church in Jerusalem to exhort them that with purpose of heart they should cleave to the Lord or that they should continue with the Lord. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed from Tarsus to seek Saul, who was the apostle Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came to pass that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught many people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. For a whole year they assembled with the church 
and taught many people. In order to maintain unity, we must be receptive to intensive teaching. The late G.C. Brewer one time said, If it were in his power to do so, he would have every member of the church to sit at the feet of a strong, faithful preacher of the gospel every night of the week for six months. How would you like to have a six-months meeting? Night after night, T.B. Larimore held a meeting of six months' length in Sherman, Texas one time. Brother Brewer, by that statement, is emphasizing how important it is for members of the church to be taught. We need to become rooted and grounded in the faith. That's the only way that unity can be established and maintained. And then the fourth essential to unity, we must have love for one another. There must be among God's people a spirit of sharing with one another and of helping one another. Come back to that memorable second chapter of Acts. In verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. And in the fourth chapter, And the multitude of those who had believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Down to verse 34. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as he had need. Can we read those verses and not be impressed with the tremendous love and care and concern and sympathy and empathy that those first converts to our Lord had for each other? Now, as I come to the close of my lesson tonight, I want to try as best I can to make a very practical current day application to the lesson. For some time, an area of special interest and concern to me is in seeing unity restored between those referred to as institutional brethren and non-institutional brethren. In the late 1940s and throughout the 1950s, tensions mounted in the church and eventually a division occurred. 
It occurred over congregational cooperation, using the sponsoring church as a means for evangelization and mission work. The disruption, the division occurred over the church support of orphan homes, over the church relief of non-saints, those who were not Christians. Those favoring the sponsoring church kind of cooperation, the church support of orphan homes, were called liberals, and those who opposed them were called antis. Some of you are old enough to remember that, but many of the rest of you have no idea really of what I'm talking about. Feelings ran high. Debates were conducted. Lines of fellowship were drawn. And a division, a separation occurred. Today, 60 years later, the alienation still exists. But I dare say that many younger members on either side of these issues know very little about what the issues were that divided us or why we felt compelled to divide. I, for one, and I know that I am not alone in this, there are many others who would like to see a more determined effort made for these estranged brethren and these estranged congregations to work together more congenially. There are any number of reasons why this needs to happen. We have far more between us that we agree on than we disagree on. We all believe in the inspiration and authority of the Bible. We all believe in the oneness of the church. We all believe in and preach and follow the same gospel plan of salvation. We all believe in the necessity of baptism, of immersion for the remission of sins. We all believe in worshiping God in spirit and in truth. We all believe that a cappella singing is the only acceptable music that we're to offer to God in worship. Further, we all face the same kinds of challenges. We face modernism and postmodernism. We face situation ethics. We face evolution. We face the growing notion that the church of our Lord is just another denomination among denominations. We even face the idea that one really does not have to be baptized in order to be saved. It seems to me a pity and a shame that with so much in common that we cannot at least begin to make an effort to work more harmoniously with each other, even though we may still entertain differences of opinion over these matters that divided us long ago. In that connection, I want to read a quotation from Brother Cecil May, Jr., I think he's pretty well known here in Montgomery. 
in the June issue this year of his little publication called Preacher Talk, Brother May said this, I have great respect for many called antis. He's talking about those people who oppose the sponsoring method of church cooperation, those who oppose church support of orphan homes and church relief of non-saints. I have great respect, Brother Cecil says, for many called antis. The feeling of brotherhood I have toward them increases as brothers on the other end of the spectrum, talking about the liberal end of the spectrum, go further along the path that in the early 1900s led to the establishment of the disciples as a self-identified denomination and as more of those in the non-institutional fellowship, the fellowship that we're a part of, began to consider me something with whom they can have some friendly association. Brother Cecil continues, a friend, a retired professor at Florida College who reads preacher talk, wrote me, and here's what the preacher said, I believe some of us liberal conservatives, the ones that we used to refer to as the antis, and some of you conservative liberals, meaning us, are closer to each other than either of us is to the radicals in our own camps. And so, if I may politely say so, the antis recognize that they have some radicals, and we certainly recognize that we have some liberals to the far left. And those of us who are more in the center have so much in common with each other that we ought to strive to find ways that we can work together more harmoniously. I don't have the time to do so, but I recently spent a great deal of time a few months ago reading the speeches that were delivered at the Arlington meeting held January 1968 in Arlington, Texas, between representative brethren of both sides of these issues. And the speeches that were made by those brethren were truly outstanding. And they recognized that we need to try to unite. Now that was 45 years ago. And there is still separation and alienation between the two sides. But I think there may be indications that steps are now beginning to be taken to bring the two groups back together and to work together more harmoniously. I wish that I had the time to read some of the excerpts. I do not. As I conclude tonight, let me simply say that with deep respect for our Lord's Prayer, in great honor of Paul's plea, and in striking emulation of the church in the book of Acts, let us have the courage to unite. May God bless us 
toward that end.